0: Good morning. It's good to see you all. Welcome to SCAC. If you're a newcomer as well, just especially thankful that you are coming today. And uh, today's a good day, especially if you're new, because we do have a new guest luncheon that's at 1130. We're having a full spread of Ezel's Chicken back in room A4, so you need to come. You need to come, all right? Um, Now, today is a little bit of a different Sunday for us. It's a little bit unusual. Usually at this point, I stand up and talk on and on and on. No, only about 30 minutes, okay? But instead of that, I'm going to invite a friend up, and we're going to have a conversation as part of this series that we're doing called The Blank Between Us. It's about bridge building, about peacemaking. Now, last week, Pastor Jason Davidson, uh, he came and spoke uh, and opened up the the issue for us on race, and it was just a great conversation. And he said a lot of things up here that have never been said before, and so I just want to Encourage you guys to go back to the series online and, and, and hear that. Um, and one of the things that he said is that if you, if you want to start at least beginning to get engaged, right, is that you've got to be able to invite people into your living spaces and be invited into theirs. And so today is, in a way, our attempt to do that. This is a living space here. Amen? Right? So when it comes to the issue of biblical justice and when it comes to the issue of systemic racism, we all look at a world. Everyone's looking at the world, and everyone's concerned. And like I said, there's the, the way that the church has typically responded is that we say, okay, well, I am have a lot of anxiety about it. I'm angry about it, and so I'm going to post things online or things like that, but I never really do anything about it. The other response is it's so confusing. It's so big. Uh, I've got bills to pay. I'm just going to ignore it, and I'm going to do my own thing. And I've admitted that's, that's kind of the camp that, I'm, that I've been in. But what's so important is that as a church, as the people of God who say we have, you know, the light of Christ is supposed to to shine through us. I don't want us to be just on the I'm alarmed side. We've got to do more than that. I don't want us to be just on the I'm super concerned side. But we actually want to be on the solution side. Or at least we want to be helpful. (laughs) And, uh, And the worst thing is to be irrelevant to the discussion. And so today is an attempt to do that. We want to work. The church should be working for a better day. So we've invited Ms. Marissa Johnson, one of the co-leaders, co-founders of Black Lives Matter here in Seattle. And I've invited her to this conversation not in spite of our commitment to, my commitment to following Jesus, our commitment to following Jesus, but precisely because of that. Because our scriptures tell us that God himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Those are beautiful words. We, the church needs to be more about tearing down walls than building them up. And one of the foundational ways we can do that is to love others and is to listen to them. And, and when we listen, and in this, this is a safe space. Right, church? Right, this is a safe space. Anyone's welcome here, right? In this particular space, too, when we love people, we listen to them. And we don't need to pretend that our differences don't matter. We don't need to pretend that our differences don't exist. But listening and seeking to understand, to respect where people are coming from, and people's real experience are the starting point to that process where we can build more bridges, less walls, and find some common ground. So Church, would you please welcome Miss Marissa Johnson to SCAC. <clears throat> Have a seat. I'll get your a mic. hi (laughs) Uh,
1: i'm pretty loud
0: good guys all right yep we're good okay he says we're good he's not we're good to go oh yeah hey all right good
1: morning thank you for having me i'm i feel really like welcomed and a good spirit um in this space which is more rare for me in churches these days so thank you for having me (laughs)
0: Thanks for being here so much. And uh, yeah, just uh, people have asked me, you know, what's the, what's the format gonna be like? And um, just let everyone know, we have not, I have not sent you the list of questions I'm gonna ask you. I really want this to be um, conversational and to give you a lot of space too, to kind of express um, a little bit more about, not only the Black Lives Matter movement, but also just kind of your own, your own story as well. Um, and just let people know, I, the way that I um, got to know Marissa was I basically um, Twitter stalked you you know, and um, got you. I, I was dr-
1: shocked that a pastor had a Twitter.
0: Yeah, right. I know how to. I know how to Twitter. Yeah, um, and and I wrote you this email, really long email, um, explaining to you what our church is going through, and and how as a kind of Chinese, more a little more at least background, traditional church where we're coming from, and how uh, we don't want to say stuck as well. We want to be hopefully again helpful in these really important issues that are going on. And then at the very end of my email, I put, this is not a joke, right? Do you remember that? I put, yes. This is not a, I is not a prank. <laughs> I know, I thought
1: that was quite interesting.
0: <laughs> because <laughs> when I was, again, when I was um, kind of researching you, I just saw there's so much hate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just the most vile, racist things that you could ever imagine that, that have been Don't said about up you. Don't look at my name on Reddit.
1: It's just garbage.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I was just thinking, how does, man, how does a person you know, sustain all those things, and, and we can get that later, but um, I just imagine you must get not only a lot of hate mail, but prank mail and things like that, too, yeah, and so yeah. for a church to reach out, and so I'm so glad that we got from that, those couple of email exchange of conversations, to a phone call on Friday, and then for you to actually be here, so thank you so much for being here.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me, I appreciate right. it.
0: Yes, so we're going to get into it, and um, there's basically five diff- or four or five different areas uh, I want to cover. Uh, We're going to talk about some myths of Black Lives Matter, and we'll make that really short. I want to hear your personal story. Uh, Let's talk about racism, also in general, Black Lives Matter movement, the theology, some theology, and also getting practical, because we want to leave here with some really practical things to do, okay? So number one, um, let's talk about some myths about the Black Lives Matter movement, because a lot of people in America, and I would say in our churches also, are pretty confused, okay? So here's the first one. Black Lives Matter is a hate group and particularly hates white people.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that Black Lives Matter is labeled as a hate group during the rise of the KKK and neo-Nazis, literal Nazis, taking over the highest office in the United States. If you look through US history, black revolutionaries who have fought for black freedom have always been classified as terrorists and domestic terrorists. Um, this has been true throughout the ages, and it didn't matter um, how respectable the work you did was or how wild the work you, you did was, right? Like, we know this about Martin Luther King Jr., that the FBI like, threw bricks through his window and sent him letters telling him to kill himself. Um, and he was on the number one watch list. We know that the United States government and the FBI murdered Black Panthers in their homes. We know that we have uh, Black political prisoners who are now in their 70s and 80s who are still locked up right, as political prisoners, and many of whom um, also fled to Cuba. That's where Asada Shakur uh, is right now. And so this legacy of Black liberation movements being labeled as, as hate groups and terrorist groups it's not new. It's from the very beginning, right? Harriet Tubman was, okay. was, was considered under this. And part of the reason that this is um, is because black people rising up in freedom is a direct threat to the foundations of America. Because the United States was built on the genocide of indigenous people and off of the labor of particularly African slaves, right? And so the very foundation of the United States was built on the subjugation of certain people. And so when those people rise up, it is a threat to the foundation of the united states because the gasoline that the mm-hmm. united states that gasoline that uh, the west runs on is the fuel of the expo- uh, of the exploited right okay. and so in that in that way <laughs> in that way blm is a direct okay. is sort of yeah. a threat to the state in that way
0: yeah so i just want to take it back because yeah, yeah. i think that for because again we're we we are um, we're young in the discussion yeah. right you know but what, how would you wanna relate it to uh, where we can relate it, is that you're saying that this statement about the Black Lives Matter movement is a, con- is a reiteration, at least of what a lot of us can, can understand, the, the, the civil rights movement of um, um, Martin Luther King Jr. that their disruptive tactics, we could say, um, again, they were labeled probably the same thing, hate groups right. like terrorists and stuff like that. That's what you're saying, is that correct? Yeah. Th- there's a similarity, yeah, that's why, I that's think, that, why I think that label is labels. Yeah, I think yeah. the statement
1: that you said basically depends on from whose perspective and what are they trying to protect, right? Mm-hmm. So the Boston Tea Party is never regarded as terrorists, right? Like those things are never terrorists. Um, certain populations, particularly white men in our country, can like openly shoot at the police. Uh, like what happened when, um, I don't know if you remember, the Bundy, like group Kay. that was that, oh, right, right. that yeah, was that was you Portland. know taking land, okay. yeah yeah yeah, and even and even before that, like those groups can openly like fire back at the police, and they're never labeled as terrorists. And so I think you mm. know when you think mm. about the title of hate crime, you got to think who from whose perspective mm-hmm. is that from? Sure. Um, and so people who are considered terrorists or hate crimes to the larger white America, they're liberators in our community, um, mm. and that's because of what mm. you know. What, what our values are, okay. um, that our values are, like freedom and liberation okay.
0: for our people. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get into that, this idea of the, the, the framing, like you said, from mm-hmm. who's perspective, the framing, and especially the framing of oppression and what the black experience is, okay? Now these these myths are supposed to be like really short things that we get by really quick to get into deeper <laughs> stuff, you know, but <laughs> you're doing really good, okay. Okay, well let's go to, uh, I'm gonna skip one. Um, okay, here's, here's one. Black Lives Matter <coughs> is a left-wing organization rooted in the liberal Democratic Party. So, in other words, it's the Democratic Party that have kind of sponsored and, and, and dreamed this up, and, um, I don't know, your funding is coming from, the national, fu- whatever, I would is, is love funding. money
1: from the Democratic Party, but I okay. haven't received any checks yet.
0: Okay, all right. <laughs> 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 okay, all right, that does it. Uh, and, and you would also probably say that... Um, um, Black lives matter is neither. Is that right? It's neither Republican. It's neither for Republican nor for Democrat.
1: I think the conversation between Republicans and Democrats is a conversation amongst white people in which black folks are only pawns. And so um, even the idea that this is being spurred on by the Democrats or by the left, <coughs> the Democrats haven't done anything to serve black people. And you know I've been a part with Bernie Sanders, a part of openly um, critiquing that. So I would say you know where BLM is is. Far is to the left of Democrats, right? Because Democrats and Republicans in this country are run by mostly the same people who have mostly the same interests, who pretend to fight so that we all fall in line.
0: Okay, so that's good, and I think that's kind of a, um, it's news, I think it'd be news for a lot of people because I think, again, the uh, media and, and so forth would, would portray, and especially in, in churches and discussions about Black Lives Matter, for conservative group, they're gonna say, yeah, it's a left wing, it's uh, some conspiracy to the Democratic Party and so forth. Um, but also what I'm hearing you saying is that neither Republicans nor Democrats, you would say the parties, have actually helped.
1: Yeah, no, they, <coughs> I, I mean, I th- there's some yeah, movement, think, but there's I think their interests are both very similarly aligned. And I think, you know, even when you look at city and state government across the United States, Seattle, for instance, has all the same racial disparities and issues um, that southern states and southern, country, uh, southern um, cities have, and yet we have a full Democrat. Uh, you know, Baltimore, all the major cities that have had uprisings, they're run by Democrats. Um, and so I, I would instead say that, you know, from my experience in the movement, um, we understand that, that that whole governmental institution was never for or about us and still all profits off of you know the things that subjugate us including right. prison labor and um the violent police okay. state
0: yeah and i could kind of i would kind of summarize this, this is <clears throat> as well experiences that no matter who's in political office whether whether it's like a right-wing whatever conservative or left-leaning you know, very left liberal that the inner city and the problems of the inner city remain the same generation after generation nothing seems to change yeah, uh, I just that think that I
1: just think right wing uh, on the right, what we see is a little bit more honesty about the white supremacy.
0: Okay, <laughs> good. All right, last one. Let's see. Uh, Black Lives Matter is a national organization with a strong top-down structure, and each chapter receives its messaging from a centralized national leadership.
1: Yeah, no, the whole BLM is very decentralized, and even I feel like even the movement itself has has progressed p- past. Black Lives Matter, that was sort of a rallying cry that um, sprung up after the Ferguson uprisings, you know, with the murder of Mike Brown, and and there was a lot of turmoil here. Um, But no, actually the movement, in its reality when you're inside of it, is a, a, a bunch of networks of underground people doing work. And so even probably most of the people that you've seen on TV talking about Black Lives Matter are not even the people who dictate The politics or the tactics, everything that's done within BLM that's actually like useful and resistance is all done underground, and that's pretty true for like any revolutionary Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. liberation um, movement ever. Um, And it's very decentralized because, like when I talked about you know MLK and the Black Panthers, um, the United States government has a long and documented history of. Um, engaging in repression against liberation movements. So going through specifically implanting agents and uh, trying to infiltrate groups to break them down. Like that's not even a conspiracy, it's just documented fact. And so Mm -hmm. if you're gonna have a movement that's gonna resist that, you have to uh, have a good security culture about being very careful about who you let into your circle and being mindful and having tactics to resist Um, government infiltration and we've had this in BLM like um, there's been lots of reports of the government like tapping our phones and infiltrating our groups and sending police agents to like come and be a part of our groups and things like that to sabotage Um, those are all real threats that we're facing Mm
0: -hmm. okay great thanks let's move on from the Miz. hope that's all cleared up for for a lot of us I want to get to a personal story a little bit Um, it's so easy again in in the media and Facebook just you see a picture You see a story, and you have a certain peg, a a certain leader pegged a certain way. Um, You actually, and and you're you're part of that as well. That has happened to you as well. So we want a little a little bit more about you as a person, and so we just want to start with a question that you know every relationship, you know, question starts with, uh, which is um, how much money do you make? Just kidding. Um, (laughs) That's a that's an Asian question. Okay, but Mm -hmm. uh, so we want to know where did you grow up? Here's a real. Where did you grow up? A little bit about your family life. What did your parents do? Things like that.
1: Yeah, so I guess there's a lot there, so I'll frame it in what I think is relevant for this group. I was born in Louisiana to a white mother and a black father, um, and grew up very poor, grew up uh, Assembly of God is the faith tradition that I grew up in. And then later, when we moved up here to Washington, right before I started high school, um, my family was part of Southern Baptist um, denomination. So I've always grown up in the church, like always in the pews singing any
0: southern baptist people here Southern Baptist? a little bit okay Yay.
1: yeah <laughs> so i went
0: to southern baptist seminary so yeah,
1: yeah. very <coughs> very similar you know sort of theologies and things like that so yeah. i've i've always um grown up in the church and then um i went to yeah i yeah i grew up my parents left the church for like seven years because mm. of a really bad church split and so I wasn't in church from like seven to 14, um, which in some ways has ended up being really a positive thing for me, looking at some of my friends who were de- in the church during that time and, and, you know, left the church because of it. Um, but yeah, and then I, I came to, um, I went to Seattle Pacific University and hey, any SPUers? SPU, any SPUers?
0: SPU, SPU. Yes, Monica, One. yeah. Oh, Air high, high five. five.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um and caused a lot of trouble there. No, just, just kidding. Um I have so a, you
0: you would have had have like d- Dr. Banta or, or yeah, Brenda. I'm friends Brenda Yeah, I'm friends with Mille. Brian and Brenda. Okay. Did, yeah. did you take your classes and
1: uh not Brenda but okay, Brian's, yeah, Brian's. But okay. I'm I'm friends with them and all the folks at Quest. Yeah. Um but yeah, so I have a degree in Bible and in philosophy from um, Seattle Pacific University and yeah. yeah, so okay. I've spent a lot of time in the church. I used to be a children's minister, um, which is really shocking for people. If you look at, like, my political work, and it scares a lot of people, and they're like, "How, how <laughs> is this, how did uh, how did she come from these traditions? But for me, um, you know, I've always been a person that has been really, uh, and one thing that my parents instilled in me was being yeah. driven by conviction. Um, and even though my parents have very different political beliefs by, than me, they really encourage me to, um, pursue the things that I felt like God was was pushing me towards, mm-hmm. and I feel like um, my political work versus like being being something that I do like in spite of my faith—they're like connected for me. And the only reason I do my political work is because of b- who I believe God is and what I believe God is most vested in and mm-hmm. has called me um, to be a part of. But that's like really confusing. Um, so for yeah, people. We'll,
0: let's get we'll, we'll get to that, but. Growing up then, and in a Southern Baptist, and again, I'm from a Southern Baptist background as well, um, I mean, there's no such thing as a liberal Southern Baptist. You know, you know what oh I mean? Oh no, right? I was raised that so Democrats
1: Democrats could not be Christian.
0: Right, right. <laughs> That's right. And uh, me too, me too, same, same exact thing, yeah. So is that something, and not only was that something that was kind of promoted in, again, in Southern Baptist circles, but is that something that you ascribe to as as well in that sense. That were you were you Republican? Put it that way.
1: Oh, yeah. Did I you mean, grow up
0: Republican? Like, I, did you I totally did. put that mantle this on yourself? Went, yeah.
1: So when I shut down Bernie Sanders, they basically went through my whole entire personal life. And I had a photo on Facebook with my friend Wang, who um, where it was I was joking about having a Sarah Palin button. She's known me since I had a Sarah Palin button on my backpack in high school. And like the media totally ran with that. And they were like, she's a Sarah Palin spy. And I was like Sarah Palin's not even relevant, Um, but (laughs) (laughs) it's like, I don't, okay, whatever. Like, the idea that black people could be discontent with this country was just, like, too far out there. Um, But, yeah, like, to your point, like, I grew up with a lot of really conservative beliefs and conservative theologies, and I don't change my mind easily, like most people. If I believe something, I believe it really ardently. But um, a lot of my social shifts, I mean, they've been convictions, Um, from God and I've written about this a little bit about how you know for for a lot of people if they change their political views or their social views or if they're exposed to different people or different things it's like they have to either adopt new views and leave their faith or they have to shut out the rest of the world and and continue to Mm -hmm. be a part of the church and I'm really fortunate that I feel like God has really cast a vision in my life for being always open to being changed and challenged and uh changing my views and like mm-hmm. putting me in a position to be convicted and to be able to repent and to be able to respond but i grew up with some of the most conservative theology my grandfather's a southern baptist mm-hmm. you know preacher or whatever um and so i did not come to where i am politically very easily so how, d- <laughs>
0: how did that happen how did that shift what was the shift that happened for you
1: Yeah, I mean, I think being at Seattle Pacific and being around other Christians, it was always a a progression, right? So I always encourage people, like, um, you know, people who were my first exposure to certain issues, you know, maybe six months or a year or two years down the line, now I'm I'm further to the left than they are, right? You know, like you continue to grow and you continue to learn and progress. Um, But really what it was for me was being exposed to other people and other ideas and being convicted about it. And um, so much of my experience in Christian community has been um, that Christians are so siloed from the rest of the world and like cut off from the rest of the world and from other people. And it's like, I'm just gonna sit with all the people who mostly believe what I believe. Um, And there's a fear, right? There's a fear like if we, if we are exposed to other people who think differently, then like our kids are gonna be wild mm-hmm. and like, mm-hmm. you know, sex, yeah. drugs, and alcohol, and all of those yeah. things. And going to SP, what we learned is that, or I don't know, what we learned <laughs> is that you 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 save people off from all those things, and then they leave school and they go wild, right? Because they've had no exposure <laughs> to a lot of things. And and luckily, you know, my parents were really conservative. But one of the th- good things about my parents is that they've never encouraged any me and my siblings to be cut off from the world they yeah. encouraged us to go and to learn and to be with other people and to yeah. engage now I've ha- as they've gotten older I've had to press back on them about that kind of stuff but what that meant was um not being afraid to encounter new people and right. new ideas and right. allow um allow my faith to be moved by that and then also just going back and studying studying Christian traditions and Christian histories and there's a le- there's a long legacy of Christian revolutionaries, right? Who said really radical things and and did really radical things? People whose stories have pretty much be a, been erased, and so resurrecting those stories and yeah, those ideas Jesus, have been. I, and mean, you know, I know everybody's radical, like, oh, Jesus right? was I mean, super, you know, kind and nice, yeah. and I'm like, mostly Jesus just walked around telling people that they sucked. Like, <laughs> for <laughs> the mo- for the most part, like that's mostly like I think Jesus would have been a jerk. I don't know if I would have liked to interact with him. Like, he might have been a jerk. He might have it, just it been like, I think it been, yeah, yeah, it would have been yeah. tough. So i don't know i i see that legacy within christianity
0: and so i I think that's that's good and i think we we want to own that as a church too is that um i mean that's our history too again when when i came here 14 years ago and and it's a story that i've told here is that you know we didn't have one one dollar one volunteer going out to our community we just had totally kind of disconnected from what was really going on and and we don't want to continue down that road let's let's go into let's talk about black lives matter let's talk about um racism systemic racism what is the agenda uh, for Black Lives Matter?
1: Yeah, I think, I think the agenda for the larger black liberation movement has always been the full liberation <coughs> autonomy of, of black people, of African people here in the United States and globally. Um, African people have been exploited across the globe, right? And all of the wealth, all of the um, infrastructure that the, that the West has, that the United States have, has all been built around chattel slavery. Like everything, everybody has all the money, all the positions. The reason why we're one of the richest nations in the world is all built off of the black backs of enslavement and of genocide. Um, and yet, the people who whose backs this country was built off of continue to be exploited. They continue to have the least amount of wealth, the least amount of safety. Right. Um, and so, for for us, it, it's it's about. Um, having full uh, liberation and autonomy for our people okay. to live, to be sustained, to take care of themselves, and to make decisions about themselves and their lives.
0: That's really good. I, I wanna back up on that a little bit because um, what you're describing is an experience of a minority group. Now, obviously we're in an Asian, Asian context here, and we, everyone in here has also faced discrimination in some different way, but our discrimination as Asian or Asian-Americans is very different from blacks. And so I can, I can talk about, when I talk about Asian discrimination when it, with my friends, with my Asian friends, or if I'm trying to explain what does Asian discriminat- discrimination feel like to my white friends or to my black friends, I don't use words like Oppressed. Um, I'll talk about being made, f- being like things like being made, f- being of, mm-hmm. um, being pegged in a certain way, like, oh, you're Asian, so you're going to be the last one to raise your hand. You're not going to be the leader. You're not going to be the vocal one. You're going to be the real quiet, compliant one. That's, that's where we're kind of pegged in, but we don't use words like oppressed. Um, can you help us understand a little bit as a, and you, you know, you know, speaking for all of black America, things like that, but that is a. A word that resonates with the Black community—they mm-hmm. will use that word, being oppressed. Um, as an Asian American, I wouldn't—I don't use that word from my experience. I—I mm-hmm. um, I can even talk about Asian privilege. Being Asian, working for me—I don't—I know Blacks would never. There's no Black privilege. I don't—I haven't heard Blacks use that kind of word like that. Right. Can you maybe give us a little bit of snapshot of, of the. What it, what it feels like, what do you feel like in America? What, what do blacks feel like in America? What is this oppression that is constant, oppressive that is there, that causes so much pain?
1: Yeah, okay, so I'm gonna take a gander, and I might be totally wrong, because I'm gonna start talking about, a little bit about your communities, which I <laughs> know very little about, about, but try to make some connections here. Um, the reason why we talk about oppression and why things are a little bit embroiled up um, is that Black folks um, not only are not allowed to congregate as a people, but they're not allowed to build wealth and take care of themselves as a people. So imagine if your communities were able to get together, but you were not able to have good jobs, you were not able to feed your kids, you were blocked out of housing consistently, the housing that you did get, you were charged like 10 times as much for. And imagine if that was true throughout the generations for all of, for all of your people, right? That would put you in a very particular Position, um, and you know we've talked about a little bit more. Um, part of the difficulty in race conversations when you're talking amongst brown folks, amongst POC, right, is not all of people us of have color. people yeah. of color. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> is not all of us are are regarded or treated the same way by white people, right? And so we try to talk about our experience, and yet our experience is really different. And I don't know how much discussion you guys have had about it here, but um, one of the things that we talked about was this this idea of the model minority, right? Um, this idea that part of how racism functions in the United States is that you take certain groups and you give certain groups privileges so that they know never get with the other groups and they rise up, right? And so, um, for instance, you know, one of the difficulties that we've talked about of, of why there's less conversation, right, bet- between some Asian, Asian communities mm-hmm. and black communities is because of anti-blackness that exists there, right? And specifically anti-blackness that, um, I think s- specifically anti-blackness in that, um, the idea has been like, you're better than those black folks, right? Like, that that's how, uh, what has been propped up in a lot of um, Asian communities yeah, you and could that's, say it. and yep. that's, <laughs> you know, okay. and that's been in my yeah. experience, and I think that yeah. that is a function of white supremacy, right? Um, is you never you never allow anybody to be fully liberated, right? But if you give them a few if you give them a few crumbs, you give them a few things in the system, they're not going to unite with everybody else um, to sort of rise up. And so in, in that way, I mean, um, you know, given the model minority myth and mm-hmm. and this idea that um, in large part in Asian communities, a lot of people are able to sustain themselves, are able to build wealth and share wealth amongst themselves and their people. That's not the case for black people in the United States and at every turn that black folks have tried to unite with each other and take care of each other, the United States government has dismantled it. I don't know how many of you guys know about the MOVE bombings in Philadelphia. Does anybody in here know about this? Independent black community, uh, go look it up. Independent black community was building wealth for itself um, and congregating and taking care of its people amongst itself and the United States government went and bombed them. It's the only bombing to happen in on United States soil against United uh, States citizens, and so there's there's this sort of fiscal attack and economic attack that happens on Black people that that isn't the case across the board um, in terms of POC. And what's really interesting that we talked about is there seems to be this huge gulf in this division between you know like Asian folks and Black folks, um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But one thing that I didn't know that I learned was you don't have to go very far back in American history to see our peoples all being regarded as the same. You right. know what I mean? If you look right. back in the early 1900s and you look at the laws in the United States, it says uh, the testimony of these people will never be legal in the United States. And it says Negro and it says Chinaman. And those were regarded as the same things, right? But a lot of people don't know about that history um, or that legacy. And the
0: redlining as well in in Seattle and all all across the U.S. It's still written into people's
1: deeds here in Seattle. Yeah,
0: and it it includes, we're all lumped together, Asians, blacks, Jews in some cases as as well. We're all lumped together. Yeah, Yeah,
1: but now now some of those things have transitioned. And particularly what has happened um, is that some people are offered, if you assimilate in certain ways, and if you stay within your certain bounds, we'll let you live, we'll let you have a good salary, we'll let you do all of those things. Um, and honestly, for, for people of color, um, and, particu- and also in the Asian community, there are societal benefits that come from distancing yourself from black people and blackness. And when that's on the table, people often uh, will choose to distance themselves uh, from blackness, even against their own interests, so that mm-hmm. way they can have certain mm-hmm. privileges okay. in our world.
0: That's great, and so uh, I, I just wanted wanted to give you that time because um, our experiences are so different, and we're trying to bridge this whole series, and as a church, trying to bridge those differences. That we need to hear that there is a um, the African American group um, feels oppression, and it's it's constant. Um, it's it's painful. It's killing people. Yeah. Right. And and. We just need to say y- that, we and just, I would also yeah.
1: add that certain people have been erased from this conversation. So there, there are um, there are Black Asians, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> that exist sure, in the yeah. world in the United States, and and a lot of times I'm friends with them, and a lot of times their experience. Um, there are Black people part of basically every ethnic group, right? Like there, are, there are um, Af- uh, Afro Latinos, and there are you know. Black Asian people and their Black uh, Black Indigenous people and all those, but those folks tend to be erased, right? Like the Black people of any community tend to be like hidden and erased and don't get space to Kay. speak. So I just wanted to acknowledge that those that these communities are not as distant as we like think. There are people who inhabit. Well, thanks the space for building a bridge to
0: us. That's great. That's great. Um, so, uh, Black liberation. What's another agenda for Black Lives Matter? Another one.
1: Black li- no, that's it. That's the only one. That's the big one. That's, that's the, the only one. main. That's okay. that's that's the only one. Now the consequence of that is, because of how race was created in the United States, black liberation de facto means something negative happens to whiteness, right? Because whiteness and white, the the all of the powers that white people have, the wealth. Um, the resources that white people have, because they're built on the, bla- on the backs of black people, white folks gotta lose something, and maybe other people too, in order for black folks to have, right? You, you, it has to come from, from somewhere. And so that's a lot of the reason why people feel like black liberation is an attack on whiteness, mm-hmm. is because in a way, it is. Because what whiteness is, and what whiteness has been created to be in the United States, is, is a, a demarker that these people have power to collect resources, to hoard resources, to exploit mm-hmm. and to commit violence against other people.
0: So are you talking about the potential for like reparations and things like that? Is that what you're saying?
1: Um, I, I, guess, I guess more what I'm, what I'm highlighting is like, I don't know if you guys have heard this, but people will say, you know, pro-black doesn't mean anti-white. Have you guys ever heard that phrase? That's not true. Um because because of because of because if you look at how race was created in this country, right? Whiteness was created to mean not black, right? Like these are all the people who get privileges and we label the people as black, they're always gonna be a permanent underclass. And so you can't hold on to those two things and somehow have equality, right? Like if you if you, if you, over hundreds of years, you're always stealing from me, you make sure I'm really poor, you're taking all my money. When we turn around and you say, okay, we're going to have, I say, I want liberation. I want to be able to take care of myself. I want to be free. And you say, cool, but I'm not giving you any money. <laughs> right? Is that is that liberation? No. In order for me to be liberated and to be free, you're going to have to lose something. Right? Um, and that's well. If
0: I was trying to be a, a person of justice, yes. then I would want to figure out equity in some way, right. at least. Right. And
1: if I'm trying to be a person who's truly wanting to be liberated for me and my family, I might pursue the, what you have and what you owe me mm. by any means necessary.
0: Okay. Okay. Understood. Thank you. Thank you. Um, now, what I want to get to, we've got about <laughs> ten minutes left. What I want to get to is where I think that there is a a disconnect with um, Black Lives Matter and maybe general culture, maybe Asian culture or e- church culture as well, uh, evangelicals that is, is that methodology. I'm gonna talk about methodology for a second, okay? So I have a picture. When we think of Black Lives Matter, this is the picture we think of, right? It's, oh, I it's, love, she's it's great. Ashley, Ashley, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's, so friend of mine. she's a of dis- mine. It's like this disruptive thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's this kind of in your face, uh, its it's very rude, you know, we're like, it's very rude. Um, you wouldn't Super do anything rude. like that, right? I'm you the you would never do anything like that, right? I'm literally. The okay, rudest. so next <laughs> slide. We have a, we have your picture, okay? Hey. <laughs> so that's that happened. Was that two years ago or a uh, year and a half?
1: Man, year, Bernie looks so sad.
0: <laughs>
1: He'll be all right. He's rich.
0: <laughs> so. So what's <laughs> interesting about this? This you know what what happened, right? And and, and this is how everyone in the country kind of knew your name and, and began to know a, a little bit more about, about Black Lives Matter. Um, it's, it's the disruptiveness which causes a, a mm-hmm. disconnect because after this happened, yes, there was a huge um, conversation, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it wasn't about the issues. <laughs> the conversation was about the rudeness. You know, well, and,
1: it, it, and it morphed. The first few days, it was all about the rudeness, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. it's interesting if you look up the the media coverage about a week out, then people are like, actually, they actually accomplished a lot of stuff. And then two weeks out, they're like, okay, here's why mm-hmm. what they did was really important. You yeah. know, it was kind of interesting for me to see that. In
0: the and media. so a couple things I, I do want to, uh, and and there's going to be different views here about like, yeah, you know, was that rude or was that proper, things like that. And it was and rude. I, and I think that um, it was awesome. And as I think that we we continue to. Understand the framing of it, then we would understand why as right. well. There, there's a reason, but I just want to highlight a couple things that you had said during the uh, disruption here. You had talked about <coughs> 210 million dollars uh, to imprison black children. That mm-hmm. this, you know, mass incarceration. Okay, mm-hmm. that was an issue you raised. Uh, that the Seattle Public Dis- Police Department is under a federal consent decree, meaning that they've been. It's been stated as fact that they don't know how to police black communities. Basically,
1: that but that they engage in um, excessive force and racial discrimination. Both of those things. Okay. Yeah. So
0: that's time. been that's like public record. Like that's that's where they are. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the Seattle Public Schools suspends black students six times higher mm-hmm. uh, than their counterparts.
1: Yeah. And yeah. one thing one thing that's really important about that too in Seattle school districts and also there's truancy laws in Washington State. So so getting in trouble at school for students means. Being put into prisons for a lot of students, they go through juvenile court and things like that. So school it's to prison, yeah, pipeline. school to prison yeah. pipeline. Okay. So it's not just you know, oh, you get in trouble at school. Well, you get in trouble at school, you might be in child prison, and if you're in child prison, chances are statistically that you're going to be in prison for the rest of your life.
0: Okay, and then also you talked about uh, gentrification of the central district, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then you had one moment uh, at the very end. Uh, well, I don't know it's very end, but you had one moment when describing these things and you're almost in tears uh, because you you had to scream over the crowd to say that your life mattered and you almost it's like you were breaking down there can you just in that moment right there can you just explain a little bit emotionally what you were what you were feeling
1: um yeah I mean I think I think what's it's funny because people like you said with the rudeness and everything people sort of People sort of ignore black folks, ignore black folks' oppression, ignore all of those things, are like cool with the status quo, and then act really surprised when black people rise up and are angry, um, even though all other roads have been blocked off, right? Like, no one pursues rudeness or protest or things that could get you killed. That's not the first reaction, right? People come to those tactics and come to those spaces after all other doors have been closed for them Because the things that we're experiencing are literally life or death for ourselves and for our children, and so in that moment, what I was feeling the weight of was, you know, there was a crowd that was screaming at us. They were throwing things at us. They were throwing trash. They're yelling for the police to come and tase us, which is like ironic, right? Given what we just said about the police department. Um, But the two things that I was feeling in that moment was one, just utter just dismay, right? The fact that I even had to get up, right? And I had to scream and beg for these people to recognize our lives, recognize the value of our lives and how like jacked up that was. And then the second thing was I really felt the power of my ancestors, honestly, because um, like I said, we come from a long legacy of black people have always been resisting and fighting in this country and globally. Um, and so for me in that moment, I felt like I was feeling a lot, uh, just feeling like a lot of, just um, the blessing and the spirit of mm. my ancestors who have been in this fight, who have done the same things mm-hmm. that I'm doing right now mm-hmm. for years and for generations, and that we're like carrying on their mantle. Right.
0: And <clears throat> and so you said that in that moment that that you 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 felt yeah that moment where you felt like you had to scream and shout that your life mattered. And I think that might be a good again helping us understand that that's how that's how a lot of people view black people um the the racism um and when they see people being shot on the street like there's a consciousness i believe that's in in me that's in a lot of people where well those those lives didn't matter that much Yeah, I mean, I think it's
1: really interesting that protest and yelling or being rude is being framed as violence, where our people are being gunned down in the streets. They're being uh, rounded up into prison slavery, and yet none of that is regarded as offensive violence. Do you know what I mean? So like, even even us shutting down Bernie Sanders, uh, for all of people talking about how rude it was, It was the most pacifist action within BLM to date. Do you know why? It's because every other time that we had that kind of conversation nationally around black lives, a black person had to die brutally and on camera before we had that conversation. And so that has become the offering that is demanded and required for us to even talk about the issues. We gotta see a black child die brutally on tape, we gotta blast it out to everybody like it's a sporting event, and then maybe we can have this conversation. And so yes, for me, 30 minutes of being rude, I would do it for an hour, two hours, however long it takes, because for that 30 minutes of us being rude and us putting our personal reputations up for, up for sacrifice, was able to do something and have a conversation where a black body, a sacrificial black body being crucified wasn't the cost, wasn't the price. And so I'm always pushing people to rethink how you think about violence. How in the world do we live in a place where what's happening in the prisons in the United States, what's happening in, in, with ICE and with deportations, what's happening with Muslims is not violence, but yelling at your oppressor is violence. Burning down a gas station is violence amidst drones dropping across the world. I just really want to push everybody to to rethink about who has told you what is violent and what is not? Who has put you in a position to look at the violent murder of black people and of other people and to be unmoved, yet to be offended by Oh, two black women yelling at a white man. And I want to give some context to that situation as well. With Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders himself and all of uh, his supporters who were there, all of those people have protested politicians. They've all yelled in politicians' faces over environmentalism. Do you know what I mean? So I wasn't even in a crowd of people who were like, oh, you don't yell at politicians. They built their whole brand on that. They brag all the time about that they shut down politicians. What they were mad is that we called them out for it. Not the tactic, which all of them have done. And what really sparked the, for that moment for people, I don't even think was that we were rude or whatever, blah, 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 I think the visual, one thing that me and Mara didn't know when that moment happened, and that we've learned since, is the reason why that moment struck a chord with people across the political spectrum, Democrats and Republicans, everybody was mad. Like, everybody was just right. super mad. Right. The reason why it sparked that was you have two young black women with ratchet braids and big earrings, clapping and yelling and usurping the power of a white man, a very powerful white man, and doing it boldly. they did. We didn't come, we didn't beg, please listen to us, we just have a question, please. No, we went up, we stole his platform, and we demanded space, we demanded recognition, we demanded all of those things for our people. And that was offensive because that gets, that attacks the world order of the country that we live in, where that's not supposed to happen, yeah. we aren't supposed to be able to take that kind of power.
0: And if we had time, I'd go into this um, phrase called respectability of politics, and so I just want you guys to, you can Google that, and to, again, to reframe an understanding why that doesn't work for Black Lives Matter right. movement. Okay, now, I wanna go into theology, we're running low on time. Um, um, your faith fuels what you do, your activism. Right. Um, Can you uh, uh, share with us maybe one or two scripture verses or, or, I don't know, things in Jesus' life, whatever it might be, that that you go back to that fuels your activism?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, so like I said, I have a degree in Bible growing up in the church, and I've been a children's minister. I know you guys are all fearful. Like, she made curriculum for kids. Oh, my gosh. They're all brainwashed. Um, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) um, But so, you know, it's funny. the. The Bernie, the whole Bernie incident and everything happened really fast. And when I woke up the next morning, um, I went to church, <laughs> shockingly, and uh, I later got kicked out of that church, but um, for my activism. But um, it was funny. I feel like the Lord gave me a verse and said, "Go to you know Matthew ten, and that's where Christ commissions the twelve disciples, right, and says." I did not come to bring peace, but to bring the sword. And so go out and, and, and heal people and, and perform signs and wonders and preach my gospel. And if people receive you, they will be blessed. And if they turn you away, dust the dirt off of your feet and keep it pushing right? Because what I've come to bring will turn sister against mother, against brother. This will divide people. The gospel is divisive, right? Because that's what's required to pursue justice. And just know that if you're, if you're a disciple of Christ, if you are a prophet for Christ, if you are preaching the gospel, people are going to be mad about what you have to say, right? People are going to hate you if, if I, you know, that's where he talks about if I'm cursed and defiled, how much how much more so you, right? Um, and I was really, it was really interesting that that was, like, <laughs> the verse that I was brought to. Yeah. And it's been sort of a framing for me in, in the work that I pursue. Because yeah. a lot of times in Christian communities, what I've been taught justice work looks like is, like, being really nice and polite. The only thing that we're gonna draw strong lines around is sexuality, really, honestly. We all take very strong positions on that. But everything else, like oppression, persecution, it's kinda whatever. Um, And if you do engage those subjects, just make sure you be really, just make sure everybody feels really comfortable and kind and that no one is ever, you know, offended or anything. But that's just not true to the Gospels. And I think, you know, we talked a little bit about this, about this idea that people don't need to be divided. And I think actually right now the divisions are really, really important. Because what divisions allow you to do, and the Christian church did this too, this whole idea of united means that you can have everybody with you and anybody can behave the way that they want. And that's not true because we as Christian people believe that an important part of the Christian life is repentance, right? Like, Christ says, come as you are, but don't stay as you are, right? You have to change. You have to be formed. You have to continue to pursue things. But we rarely call people to true repentance in issues of justice, right? And so there has to be some dividing lines, like I said in, in Matthew 10, because you, you draw lines around what your values are and what you allow in your community, Right? So for instance, in this community, I would hope if you had a rapist, you would draw some lines around that. That that person would not be freely able to be in your community without any conversation, any engagement, or whatever, right? And that that's not being divisive, but that's actually creating safety within your community. And so right now what we see in the United States is we're divided, right? But we've always been divided. And what the divisions are is, now I don't have to sit in a room with a white supremacist. (laughs) And <laughs> I don't need to. And so when you're uh, when you're able to congregate with people who share your values in justice work and resistance work, then you're able to actually get something done. You're able to actually keep the people who are around you safe. Um, and so this whole idea that we just need to all be like unified and all come together and kumbaya doesn't acknowledge the fact that um, racism and colonialism in the United States is an abusive relationship, right? So if you have a couple that's in an, a, an abusive dynamic, and uh, you tell them, "Oh, you guys just need to hug it out more," right? Like that's not that's not really responding to what they need. Maybe they need space at that time or or something like that to be able to come together. And so I think I think the divisions the divisions are important because we need to clarify what we believe in and what we're willing to stand for. And I see very few Christians willing to do that on issues that aren't sex or homosexuality.
0: Okay, that's good. And I think that where we're trying to go in this series is that there, there's room for conversation first, right? And, and and there's a point of trying to, at least for me, trying to find the w- the areas of common ground and harmony. But I, I do agree that there's some points where people who don't want to peacemake just don't want to peacemake. And then from there, it's it's, a, it's another tough, tough discussion of where you go next. But I need, I need to move us on, I need to move us on. Um, Getting practical, and we're like a minute over time. Can you just give us like where where can a church like us, where can people like us who who want to make a difference in this, in fighting oppression, in uh, against um, uh, and, you know ending systemic racism? What what can we do?
1: Yeah, I think really, I think practically, <clears throat> um, this is like a great start, like actually connecting with people who are on the ground in the movement. Connecting particularly with people who aren't Christians is really, really important, um, I think. And like Jesus, thinking about who Jesus spent, you know, his life and his— I'm so glad
0: you're Christian, by the way, because this, you know, it helps. (laughs) It helps this discussion. Yes, yes, no.
1: um, But what I—you know, if we're looking at who Jesus spent time with, it's very different than who Christians spend time with. Most Christians that I'm friends with, they only talk to other Christians who go to similar churches that they do. Um, and it limits your perspective. And so I think um, having conversations with people that you normally wouldn't um, is really useful and really, like you said, listening to people and willing to engage. And then I think the last uh, practical thing, and by the way, I run a business now called Safety Pin Box, which is a subscription box for white people who wanna be allies in the fight for black liberation. And we give them tasks every month and tell them tangible things to do. um, And we also use the money from their subscription fees to support Black women activists and give them um, financial gifts and everything like that. But I think one of the important things in any um, in any context of injustice or oppression, find out who's most affected, ask them what they need, then do it.
0: It's good. Really clear. Really it's clear.
1: People think that it's really really hard, but that's because people <laughs> want to go create their own things yeah. without you know talking to people yeah. or engaging. I'm now the good. difficulty is that when somebody tells you what they need they may say some things you don't wanna hear. And that's where the rub comes and you have to decide, how far am I willing to go to engage this? Am I only willing to do things that make me comfortable? Am I only willing to do things that keep me where I'm at? Because if that's—if you want to remain comfortable and, and unmoved, <coughs> then this probably isn't the work for you. Okay.
0: Guys, can we show our appreciation for Marissa this morning? <laughs> oh, no, no, keep it on, keep it on. And um, stand up. Uh, and let's all stand to stand together, church. She's going to close us out with Doxology.
1: Oh, I don't. Do, oh, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm doing mm-hmm,
0: that. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: This feels so much more intense than talking.
0: Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Praise God
0: from, from whom all blessings flow. Blessings flow. mm Amen, church. Have a wonderful week.